So Jesus, we come before you today. We ask you would speak to us clearly. We say yes. We give you permission. We invite you. We want to know you more, and we want to leave different people than when we came in. Amen? Amen? You guys can be seated. Thank you, Ben. Way to go. Well, we are in a series called Wonder, inviting us all to experience the wonder of God in a new way. As we approach the Christmas season, where it'll culminate, but last week we talked about this covenant name of God. Remember, isn't it crazy to think that God's name isn't God? We talked about this covenant name of God that was Yahweh, and how he's both vast and epic, and he is creator, but as sustainer, he is close, and he is intimate, and he is near. And today we're going to take this name Yahweh and add on to it a little bit. Today we're talking about Yahweh Shema. And this is a name of God, and it means the God who is near, or the God who is present. And, and during this series, we're looking at these ancient Hebrew words that um, can awaken the sense of awe and wonder within us. We get so familiar with things that we lose our awe, we lose our wonder about them. And so our, our whole goal is that we would once again have our, the, the eyes of our heart just get wide, whoa, at who God is. And it culminates at Christmas when people from all over the region will be invited to this place and experience the wonder of Christmas and Jesus coming in the flesh. And so today, we look at Yahweh Shema, and I want to start with a question. What do you think the primary promise of God's word is? What's the primary promise in this book? Is it that God will love you? Is it that he'll forgive you? Is it that he'll give you eternal life? Did you know the, the prevailing promise, the prevailing theme of this entire book is that God wants to be with you. The prevailing promise of the Bible is about a God who wants to be present with his people. It starts off in the Garden of Eden, set up that way. It's created that way. And in fact, Jesus' last words to his disciples in Matthew are that he will be with them to the end of the age. The entire book is filled with these examples. And the fact that the primary promise of the Bible is that the God of the universe wants to be present with you and me, well, that alone should give us some wonder. But we're so familiar with it, aren't we? And so today we want to take a fresh look at what it means for him to be near us. Because the truth is, we all believe that God's everywhere. And most of us, we've heard this at least, we're familiar with the idea. I mean, what kind of God would he be if he, he couldn't be everywhere and anywhere? So the idea that God is close to me is pretty easy. But if we were a little more honest, we would agree that the fact or the, the head knowledge that God is close or that God is everywhere, God is near, isn't always enough. Because there are times where we might know that, but he feels a long way off. Some of you who've been maybe around this for a while, you know in your head that God's near. But oftentimes in your heart, you don't feel that. If we were a little more honest, we would agree that God doesn't always seem as close as we'd hoped. Because there are those times in our life when things go so wrong that the circumstances and our hearts cry out, where is God in this? And then there's those quiet moments, those still moments. You're by yourself and, and you reach out with your soul to, to contact, to connect. 
and come up with nothing. So there's, there's something about the head knowledge. We know God's close or God's near and God's everywhere, but the, the desire that we wouldn't have more. So whether you're a veteran churchgoer or a rookie or a skeptic here today, I believe each of our hearts have cried out for the more of God's divine presence. And I believe it is this cry for more that leads us to Yahweh Shema. Famous theologian Dallas Willard tells a story. When he was a young boy, his mother was tragically taken from him. She passed. And you can imagine how this would impact a young kid, the insecurity it would leave and the hole in his life. And he talks about how at night he would lay there in bed and just be so afraid and so lonely. And then the still of the night, he would, he would tiptoe down the hall to his parents' bedroom where his, only his dad was there. And he would say, Daddy, can I please sleep with you? And his dad would look at his son and he would see the heartbreak and the fear. And his dad is dealing with the loss himself and his dad would say, yes, son. So they would, he would climb into bed and Dallas talks about how he would lay there in the pitch black and he knew his dad was next to him. He knew his dad was close. He knew his dad's presence was near. But it wasn't enough for his heart. And in those quiet black moments, the still of the night, the small, timid voice would break the silence. Daddy, is your face toward me? And his dad would say, yes, son. And Dallas said he would fall asleep with the knowledge that his dad wasn't just near, but that his face was toward him. You see, we all have a desire. We were created like this, not just to know he's close, but to know that our, our heavenly Father's face is toward us, that his favor, that his smile, that his grace is toward us. And today, our word study is gonna focus on one person individ individually in the Bible. And I'm gonna have to move fast because it's a narrative. He was born to a wealthy father and wealthy mother, and he was the younger of twin brothers. His name is Jacob, and he's a major character in the Old Testament. And you've most likely heard some or all of this account. And if that's, if that's true, I would ask that you would put on fresh eyes and be open to the wonder that God wants to reveal today. In Genesis 25, Isaac and his wife Rebekah have two twin boys. Um, the older is Esau and the younger is Jacob. Now Esau, the older brother, is a manly man. He's a skilled hunter. He's an outdoorsman. On the other hand, Genesis 29 tells us that Jacob, the younger twin, is a, quote, tent dweller, which is the Bible's nice way of telling us that he was a city boy. Now you have Esau. He's outside, he's camping, he's hiking, he's hunting, while Jacob is in his room playing Fortnite and trolling the internet. Esau is favored by his father. Jacob is favored by his mother. And so we have this tent-dwelling, video-game-playing mama's boy who we're gonna look at today. In the ancient of days, the eldest son got two very important things. The first he would get is called the birthright. And the birthright means that he would inherit the family's estate and wealth to carry on the family line and honor. He got the lion's share of all the servants and the livestock and whatever kind of wealth that Isaac the father had accumulated. The second honor was called the father's blessing. 
the patriarch would, would hold his son and pray a prayer of blessing that all the favor that God had upon me, Father, would you have it upon my son? And he would pray that over his eldest son. Both of these honors were very important to the eldest son. Esau, he was older by mere seconds, had both, and Jacob wanted them. So we fast forward a decade or so, and in a moment of weakness, Esau, the elder brother, trades his inherited family birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. A bowl of stew for a birthright. He trades his entire future for an immediate momentary fix. And but Orchard, before we scoff at how foolish Esau is for making this trade, how often are we guilty of trading sacred things for temporary fixes? How often do we trade away virtues that matter most for vices that just leave us more hungry when they leave? We trade our purity for a bowl of internet soup. We trade our character for a stew of financial gain. Anytime I trade what is of eternal worth for something that is immediate, a temporary fix, the price tag is far greater than I bargained for. Jacob now has the birthright. But he's not satisfied. He wants that blessing as well. So we skip forward more decades, and their father, Jacob and Esau's father, Isaac, is old and dying, and he's blind. And he knows his time is coming, so he invites his son Esau in, and he tells him, Esau, I want to pray the family blessing over you. Big day. But before we do it, go out and, and, and make me some of that wild venison stew that you make so well. We'll share that, and then I'll pray over you. And Esau leaves the tent. Well, Jacob's mom, Rebecca, is listening. And she hears this. And she immediately runs to her kitchen and starts whipping up a stew. There's a lot of stew in this family. It's a very pivotal thing. She begins to cook this stew, and she comes up with a plan for her son Jacob to get the blessing from her husband. The only problem is that Isaac is this manly, hairy man. And Jacob is not. And so they put goat hair on the back of his neck and on his forearms where his father would hold him to pray. And so armed with a bowl of hot stew, with fur glued to his neck and his arms, he opens the tent flap and goes in, hoping to trick his elderly father. Well, it works. And Jacob leaves the tent with the birthright and the blessing. When Isaac, the father, finds out, it says he shakes violently. He's so saddened and hurt. And Esau, you can imagine, comes home hours later with his stew and finds out, and he swears that when their father's passed, he will kill his brother. Because of this, Jacob flees his brother's rage and his father's scorn, and he, he finds himself quickly going from family blessing to family outcast. He is sent away from everything and everyone he knows to travel across country by himself. And this is not a joyful celebration of the blessed son leaving to go out on his own. No, this is a disgrace. This is a midnight camel ride to nowhere. He flees his brother and in Genesis 28, it says that Jacob reaches a quote, certain place. Now this is curious to me. 
Because if you know the Bible, the Bible's notorious for, for naming every hill and stick and rock and dung pile. Everything has a name and it means something. But Jacob here is on an ordinary road and he steps off to an ordinary place. In other words, there is nothing special about where he is. And this is where he is gonna spend the night. And my mind wonders what Jacob must have been feeling as he laid down that evening looking at the stars. You know these moments, we have these in our lives. Those moments between living your life and sleep, those last few quiet moments where you finally think about some things that you don't get to during the day, maybe some things you don't want to think about when you wrestle with some things. I bet Jacob felt very alone. I bet loneliness was pursuing him. All those he loved, all those he had learned to live with were far away from him. And there was very little chance of any reconciliation. And maybe for you as well. Maybe your last moments of the day are filled with the pain of a broken relationship. Or perhaps you lay there with the anxiety of a relationship that's in the process of breaking. And in those silent, dark moments, like Jacob and like Dallas Willard, maybe you wonder quietly, God, are you with me? Do you see me? Is your face toward me? We also know that Jacob came from a wealthy family. He always had anything he needed, but now the credit cards were canceled. He says later that he went through this place with only a staff. The mama's boy was out and he could not live in his, the basement of his parents' tent any longer. He was on his own. How would he make ends meet? How would he survive? And he was human like us and he would lay there at night wondering what was next. And perhaps you, like Jacob, you lie there with numbers flying through your head and not counting sheep numbers, but like real numbers with real consequences like debt and bills and clothes and buying groceries or simply just staying afloat and lying there with the weight of financial uncertainty on your chest. Do you ever wonder if God is with you in all this mess? God, do you see me? Where are you? Is your face toward me? I bet Jacob laid there soaking in the guilt of all he had done. It's those quiet moments that our decisions and consequences come to light. And like him, how many of us lay there at night trying to outrun some shame or some guilt? In those, in those moments, we watch the replays of those old tapes of things we've done with the soundtrack of, how could you, over and over. And you might ask God, God, after all I've done, are you still with me? Can you even look at me? And we've all had hard times and stressful seasons, big changes and tragedies that shock us back to these big questions that lie below the surface. And the thought that God is around me or the thought that, yeah, God is near me isn't quite enough in those seasons, is it? Can we just be honest? It's not always enough. We want to know more. We, we desire more. You see, it was in this mood, in this ordinary place that God decided to reveal himself to Jacob. And in Genesis 28, 12, we see the first recorded dream in the Bible. He sees a ladder going up and angels going up and down. Then he sees God Almighty there and God says this to Jacob. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your grandfather, the God of Isaac, your father. 
I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are lying. And this is an incredible moment. The heavenly father blesses the one who'd already tricked a blessing out of his earthly father. Yahweh tells um, Jacob that the Abrahamic ancient covenant will continue through him. This is a divine birthright, a supernatural birthright blessing. But God doesn't stop there. He keeps going and he says this, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. You see, not only does God promise the covenant will be with Jacob, but he promises his presence. And more than that, he says, I will watch over you. You can only watch over somebody that you're facing. God says, I'm with you and I'm facing you. My face is toward you, my son. And when Jacob awakes, he says something that I hope many of us will have the privilege of saying. In Genesis 28, 16, he says, surely the Lord was in this place and I was unaware of it. God was here and I didn't even know. I went to bed feeling alone and anxious and abandoned, but God was here. In honor of the moment, Jacob takes his stone pillow and, and sets it up as a monument and he renames this ordinary normal plot of land, he renames it Bethel, which means house of God. It's the place where Yahweh Shema became more of a reality to Jacob. And what, what does this mean for us? It means it's possible for Yahweh Shema to be present in our lives around us and we fail to recognize it. In fact, if God is always around us and always near us, wouldn't it be true that he is most often at work around us and we fail to see it? You see, Jacob assumed this was an ordinary place that became extraordinary because of what happened. But, but Yahweh Shema had always been there for him. Perhaps any place and every place is sacred. You see, Jacob turned his pillow into a monument to the God who was near. And tonight when you lay your head on your pillow, I want you to remember that the same God who was there for Jacob is there for you. He is present with you. And in fact, when this reality begins to sink into our life and we realize that God isn't just near me or around me, but his face is toward me, his grace and his love are for me and toward me, it changes everything. We realize that he is with us in our office, in our, in our truck, in our house, in our ups, in our hard seasons, that Yahweh, Yahweh Shema is there with us and he sees us and his face is toward us. You see, when, God's, when you realize God's love and his face are towards you, it changes you. There are few things in this world that bring me joy more than my daughter, Selah. She's three. And like her mom, she loves to dance. One time we were at a party. It must have been a wedding. And we were at this party, and she, um, she went out to dance. And when she dances, she doesn't notice anyone else in the room. She was just dancing, and it was just me and her. There were people everywhere, but she didn't pay them any mind. Her eyes are locked on her daddy, and when she sees me looking, she dances so big and so beautiful. It's a moment for us. And then somebody walked up and started talking to me, and I, I turned around. I started talking to them, and I still look over and go, oh, yeah. And I'm talking, and soon my back is toward her. And her shoulders fall and her twirls get slower and her face falls. And finally, in Selah fashion, she can stand up no longer. She says, Dad! 
Daddy, look at me! And in this crowded room, I turn around, and my eyes meet hers. And my smile is upon her. My face is toward her. And she lights up. And she begins to twirl like no girl has twirled before. Like she is cleared for takeoff. Now, a pastor could have walked up to her during that time. My back was toward her and said, Now, Selah, your father is close by. He's near to you. His presence is right there. But that wasn't enough, was it? You see, there's something in us that doesn't grow out of that. We know God's near. We might know God's close, but we want to know he sees us, that his face is toward us, that in our pain, in our struggle, and in our joy, he sees us. His face is for us. His favor is for us. His grace is there. That's what the human heart longs for. We were created for that. Jacob is changed when he leaves Bethel. He's a different man with a different perspective. You see, he thought the birthright and the blessing would fulfill the longings that he had within him. He, he thought that would fulfill him. But it did not fulfill his soul like he hoped. And here in this moment with Yahweh Shema, he got a taste of what his soul longed for more than anything. You see, deep down below your mind, below your heart, and below your body, you have a spirit, a soul that has spiritual needs. You were created with a deep place within you that only the Almighty can fill. You have a soul with infinite need. And we need an infinite God to fill it. And we can go through our life putting finite fixes in there, but they will always leave us more hungry. We have an infinite need that only an infinite God can fill. Jacob had his first taste of this. You see, it's no wonder that the things in life that we thought would satisfy our souls have not. It's no wonder all the questions that we were sure our marriage would answer for us didn't all answer. It's no wonder all the things that we thought would come with success, all the security and peace of mind, it didn't quite pay off the way that we hoped it would deep down. It's no wonder that the needs the children were supposed to fill just got pushed farther below the surface. It's no wonder that the, the right house or the right car or the right clothes or friends or school, none of them quite panned out the way that we hoped they would deep within our core, not on the soul level where these questions are asked. And it's no wonder that in the beginning of the Bible, when the enemy offers Adam and Eve an apple, it didn't fulfill the longings they had within them. Do you know why? Because the fruits of this world will never satisfy the hunger for eternity God has placed in you. You have a hunger for eternity, and the fruits of this world will never fulfill that. They will always leave you empty and wanting for more. Now, I wish I could tell you that from this point on, Jacob's life was smooth sailing. But Yahweh Shema does not promise to make your life easy, but he does promise to be with you no matter how hard or easy it gets. Many years later, a lifetime later, Jacob is traveling back toward his homeland with all the wealth that he has accumulated, which is a lot. He's about to meet his older brother Esau for the first time. And his older brother has a welcoming committee for him of 400 armed soldiers. Imagine going to a family reunion where the family waiting for you is all armed. Can you imagine 
the nerves that he was feeling. Much like at Bethel, he lays down that night. He, he goes off by himself away from his family and his servants and he goes off and sleeps by himself and he lays there under the stars again with all those emotions bubbling up. Tomorrow he meets his brother's wrath. He laid there in the anxiety and in Genesis 32, perhaps one of the most curious events in the Bible takes place as God shows up to meet Jacob. But it's not this sweet little nice meeting. God shows up and they begin to struggle. They begin to wrestle throughout the night. Now, now, honestly, God could have pinned Jacob in a flash. But God wasn't there to defeat Jacob. God was there to transform Jacob. And so as they struggle through the night, Jacob refuses to let go until God blesses him. And here in this moment, three name changes take place that are important. The first one, God asked Jacob his name. He says, what's your name? And he's not, God's not ignorant. He knows what his name is. He's asking, what is your identity? Who are you? How do you see yourself? And Jacob, the cheater, the deceiver, owns up to it. And God tells him this, you shall no longer be called Jacob. I will call you Israel, for you have wrestled with me. That's the name that still is on his people to this day. The second name is amazing. You see, previously before that wrestling match in the Bible, God referred to himself as the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac. It's Jacob's granddad and his father. But here after this moment, if you continue reading, God will often refer to himself as the God of Jacob, which is astounding to me that God takes all the shortcomings of his son and instead of like just glossing over it or condemning it, he takes it and makes it his trophy. He takes the worst that Jacob had and makes it his trophy. He takes the, the pain of his past, the ugliness of his past, and redeems it. And there are things in your life, listen, there are things that you've done or things that have been done to you that you believe for some reason disqualify you from the full love or joy or peace that God has. But when you encounter Yahweh Shema, you find that he doesn't just like make those things magically disappear. Oh no, he redeems them. He turns those things into his trophies for his glory, for his goodness. Some of the worst circumstances, the hardest pains, the deepest wounds I have received in my life God has got a hold of them. He's redeemed them for his glory. He's transformed me and he's used those moments in my past to redeem others. God uses the worst of my sin and my wounds to bring redemption to others and glory to himself. Jacob was probably ashamed of who he was and his name was evidence of all that he'd done but God took his shame and made it his own name. Orchard God can take the worst that you have ever been through. He can take the, the ugliest sin you've ever committed, the things you're afraid or ashamed to even think about. He can take the things that have been done to you you don't like to talk about. He takes those. He turns them to his goodness and his glory. He redeems the darkest, the worst he can take a dung heap of your sins and turn it into a monument of his grace. 
Yahweh Shema is present. He is near. He sees you. His face is toward you. And he redeems the darkest seasons and deepest wounds and greatest losses for his glory and your redemption. He's the God of Jacob. You can trust him with your past wounds. You can trust him with your present struggles. The third name change in this story is this. After an evening of Jacob wrestling with God and being in his presence, Jacob renames this plot of ground. Jacob's really good at renaming ordinary, everyday places. He kind of has a knack for it, it seems. Now, here he is. He, a lifetime ago, he renamed Bethel. But here, what would he rename, rename this place that, where he struggled with God? Like WrestleMania, what are you going to name this place? After all he'd been through, after all the deceiving, after all the cheating, the woundedness, the hard seasons, the struggle, what would he call this place? What name would do it justice? The next morning he wakes up and builds an altar and he renames this place Penuel, which means face of God. You see, he'd found that God's face was toward him. Jacob's life was a journey in realizing that Yahweh Shema wasn't just everywhere and wasn't just close, but he was present and his face was toward him. Yahweh Shema saw Jacob in all his struggle, in all his needs, in all his vices. Jacob had an up-close and personal encounter. The face of God, Penuel. And after you encounter God and realize that his face is toward you, you are forever changed as well. You see, we see an amazing transformation in, in Jacob's life. Once he realizes that Yahweh Shema is with him and facing him, he's not the same man that he used to be. God changed his name, but greater than that, God changed his, his heart. And I, and I just have a question. How, how many of us long for life change? How many of you truly want change? Like there are, there are things in our life that we want, to, we want to change, but we're afraid to even try again because we've failed every single time. The blessing of Yahweh, Shema, the blessing of God Almighty is that he can bring true, authentic, deep, real life change. That's what he's in the business of doing. He changed Jacob's name, but he changes hearts, and that's what he longs to do for us. Orchard, we need to begin to open our eyes and look for the presence of God. He is everywhere. He is at work all around us, and we are unaware of it. Yahweh Shema is, is near you. He, he sees you. His face is toward you. But you still have to turn your heart toward him. And what would it take for in those still moments at night before sleep? For you to turn your heart to him. Or in those moments in the car, in those drives. Turn your heart to him. What would it take for you today to declare, my heart is yours? Maybe for the first time in your life, maybe for the 9,000th time. No matter how far you've gone, God says come. In fact, God says this. We always wonder like the face of God. What's on God's face Many of us believe that his face wears a frown and that if we ever come back to God Almighty, he's got that disapproving frown on his face ready to let us know that he's not happy with what we've been doing. 
If you were with us what, last month, we talked about the prodigal son and the face of the father. When his, when his son, who had wandered far away, came home, the face of the father is love and grace. Because of the work of Jesus, there is no condemnation, none. All arguments that your sin brings up for how you're unworthy, Jesus says, I got this. You are worthy. The face of God is full of grace. It wears a smile for you. What would it take for you to give your life anew to God? To give your heart afresh to Yahweh Shema? The primary promise of Yahweh, the primary promise of God in the Bible is that he wants to be with you. And beyond that, he sees you. He sees your struggle. He sees your hurt. He sees your joy. His face is toward you. He will redeem your past and restore your present. And he wants to renew your hope for the future. This series is all about wonder. The wonder of God. And my prayer this morning is that the, the eyes of your heart have gotten wide once again at the wonder that the divine God of the universe created everything and yet his face is present with you, his beloved son, his beloved daughter. If you were here today and you would like to pray to give your heart to, 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 God, to this God, to pray to receive Jesus. Please come see me, Charlie, or one of the staff will be up front praying afterwards. To close this sermon, I want you to listen to the words of an ancient prophet named Isaiah. He gave a Christmas prophecy centuries before Jesus was born. Isaiah 7.14 says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and give birth to a boy and you will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a name for Jesus, and it means God is with us. Christmas is evidence of the great lengths that Yahweh Shema has gone through to be with you. That he sent his son to die and resurrect, to open the way so that you could have relationship with the Father. It is this wonder of Christmas that we want to invite others into to meet this God and see the wonder of his son who came in the flesh. Orchard, we, because of this, those of us in Jesus, we can go on and love God and love people and love ourselves because his face is toward us. And for all of you here, I would challenge you, during a communion as we, as we go into this, this is the symbol of Jesus' body and blood. And, and if you're new here, there's no class to go through to take this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. If you'd like to remember him, it is open for you. And as you get the elements and sit down, I challenge you, think of God's face close to you, toward you. To ask to see his smile, his grace. And if you're here today and you would like to reaffirm your faith to God, or for the first time, please come up and pray with one of us. Let me pray. God Almighty, we thank you for Jesus, Emmanuel, who you sent to open the path for us. We thank you that your face is toward us. And I pray for those in here right now who have a folder of evidence in their life that says God is not pleased. He can't be happy with me. I pray, Father, that your spirit would reveal that you wear a smile, that your grace, because of Jesus, is greater than any sin. 
I pray here at the Orchard, Father, you would show us your love in a new way that we could be those people who love God and love people and love ourselves. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.